going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians this morning, so you'll want to be in Ephesians chapter 2. But um, what I'm going to read now, if you'll turn to with me, is the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. I didn't see, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see, you should be all right now. I didn't see the acknowledgement in the bulletin of who did the cover. Does anybody know who did the cover? Huh? Hannah? Okay. Oh, where does it say that? Oh, okay. It just didn't come clear enough. Okay. Thank you, Hannah. Am I messing up? Okay. Thank you, Hannah. That's beautiful. I appreciate it. Um, the book of Jonah, chapter 4. You know the story of Jonah, and uh, you, you know that Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. He said no, and he headed toward Tarshish in disobedience. Then he knew that he disobeyed God. He got thrown into the, into the, ocean, into the lake there, to the Mediterranean. Then he's eaten um, by a big fish, and he's there for three days and three nights. Then he's uh, thrown up onto the land. Then he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to Nineveh. He walks through Nineveh, a three-day journey, and he preaches that in 40 days they're going to be destroyed. And, uh, and then at the end of chapter 3, uh, then Nineveh repents, and Nineveh says no, and they, they start wearing sackcloth and ashes, and the king says, repent, and everybody wears sackcloth. They even put sackcloth on their cattle and uh, because they didn't want to be destroyed, and so they repented. And, and, uh, and then it says at the, end, at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and, they di and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I, knew, I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He still held out hope that God would destroy the city. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened that when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then, Jonah, then, the Lord, then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? <clears throat> and he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant which, for which you have not labored, nor have made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to study your word today. We really ask that you would please speak to us. And Father, we ask that this time would be used of you in our lives to to help us to see you very clearly, to see your grace and your mercy, and to see how we respond to that, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. Father, please help us. We look upon Jonah here and we find ourselves frustrated and even disgusted at his attitude. And yet, Father, we struggle with these very same attitudes at times. And so we pray that you will teach us this morning. We pray that you will sanctify us. We pray that you will draw us near to you. We pray that you will help us. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As you turn, please turn with me. Please mark Jonah. We're coming back there. But turn with me now to the book of Ephesians. book of Ephesians. thing is demon possessed man this thing is terrible it's killing me here all right we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 where we've been uh, studying here for these weeks but I want to begin by just saying by way of introduction um, the church's job is to make disciples and we're here to make disciples and therefore uh, part of what making disciples is is we, we take the word of God we teach the word of God and we as pastors here, we have a responsibility to take the Word of God and apply it to the specific challenges that our culture has, just like every other pastor throughout the history of the church and the shepherds, the elders of the church needed to apply it to their unique challenges. And that's what I'm going to try to do today. Now, I'm going to build on what we looked at last week, and that is how how the text in Ephesians chapter 1 and then the first half here, verse chapter 2, One of the themes that should be deeply impressing us is the grace and mercy of God, the goodness of God, the goodness of God in his grace, and how unworthy we are of that. That's why it's grace. So if you look in chapter 1 and verse 6, where Paul talks about to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he graced us, made us acceptable in the Beloved. And then it says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished or made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And so the, the the greatness of God's grace, the riches of his grace, the exceeding mercy that God has. And then, of course, remember in chapter 2, in the first three verses, and we looked at this both the last two weeks, Uh, how we are dead in trespasses and sins. We were aligning ourselves with Satan. We were doing all this. And yet, Paul once again wants to highlight grace. So in verse 4, he talks about a God who is rich, rich in mercy, in mercy. And mercy is that, that pity or that compassion or that sympathy for somebody who has a need 
And then the rush to help them meet the need. That's what mercy means there. And God is rich in that. That's, that's sort of God's default mode. That's, that's, if you could use this phrase, that's God's DNA is mercy, mercy, help, like pity and mercy. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And then notice what he says in verse 4. God is rich in mercy because of the great love, the great love. God has great love, the mega love that God has, by which he loved us. And then he talks about in verse 7, he's, I'm sorry, verse 5, he says, For when we were, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then notice, by grace, this is all grace. This is that unmerited love for dead people for trespassers. This is this unmerited great love poured out toward them. And then he says in verse 7 that in the ages to come, he might show the, and notice how he's throwing adjectives at it again, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness, in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is a God who is rich in grace. God is a God who is full of kindness. God is a God who, who moves to mercy. And here's the emphasis in the book of Ephesians. God does this, it's grace, because God does this to his enemies. God does this to people who are his enemies. And, and that's what the verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, are sort of pointing to. That men, as Jonathan Edwards in a sermon entitled, men naturally God's enemies. In other words, you notice here, we're dead in verse 1, dead and we're dead in trespasses and sins. That's what we looked at last week. We keep breaking God's law. We keep going against God's law. That's what, those are the trespasses. And he says, we, we walk according to God's enemy, the devil, verse 2, according to the prince of the power of the air. And verse 3, we conduct ourselves any way we want with our own desires and such. And so we're dead in trespasses and sins. We align with God's enemy. So think about this. We're dead to God. We're dead to you. I'm dead to you, God. I'm dead. Think of somebody speaking to God like this. I'm dead to you. I could care less about you. I have no emotion for you. I have no desire for you. I have not drawn to you in any way. I'm dead to you. And you know what? You can talk to me all you want, but you're dead to me. We're dead to each other. That's it. Number two, you give a law. I don't care what your laws are. I'm going to trespass them. You draw a line, I'm going to cross it. You draw another line, I'm going to cross it because I don't really care. And that frustrates you and angers you, but I don't care because I'm dead to you. I don't care. And I'm going to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. I'm going to align myself with your enemy. That's what that, I'm just, I just summarized verses 1, 2, and 3 in this passage. Now, let me ask you this. How would you feel if somebody treated you like that? How would you feel if somebody treated you like that? I'm dead to you. I don't care what you want. I don't care what you desire me to do. I ain't going to do it. And I'm going to find your enemy. And when I find your enemy, I'm going to be friends with him because we have a mutual thing in common. We don't like you. Would you not conclude that that person is your enemy? Yes, you would. You would conclude that. And that's why when Jonathan Edwards, for instance, in his sermon, Men Naturally God's Enemy, that men by nature is an enemy of God, most people react against us. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. No, no, no. You know, I may not be into religion, but I'm not an enemy of God. That, that, men aren't naturally God's enemy. Well, yes, they are. Yes, they are, because we treat God like this. And then, of course, we have the Bible who teaches us 
that men are God's enemies, that men don't like God, that men hate God. The Bible teaches that. Let's just run through. We'll put on the screen several of them from the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is listing all of the sins of mankind. And notice what he says here, uh, 1 verse 30. We're backbiters. But then notice the next one he mentions. Haters of God. Men by nature are haters of God. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul says this. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. I mean, wouldn't you think we were enemies of God if we didn't seek after God by nature? And then it actually uses the word enemies. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, it says this. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Notice that. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through death in his son. And then in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says this. Because the carnal mind, now what is the carnal mind? The carnal mind is the flesh mind or the, the fallen sinful mindset. That's what, how you could, tra- you, could, you could translate that. Because the fallen sinful mindset is enmity against God. What's enmity? Enmity is a settled disposition that this one is my enemy. That's what enmity, enmity means. So it says this, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, there's that trespasser idea, nor indeed can be. And so you notice here that the Bible teaches that God, that men are naturally God's enemy. And you can even see this in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, I'm sorry, in in the beginning verses, how this sort of marks us in terms of our relationship with God. Look at the end of verse 2. We are therefore called the sons of disobedience. We're so prone to disobedience that we're called the children of disobedience. And then look at the end of verse 3. We are called the children of wrath. By nature, we are under God's wrath because God, we are enemies with God. We are under nature. We are enemies of God's wrath. So again, let's just make this practical. Think of the person who says to you, you know what? Stop talking to me about God. I don't want to talk about God. Quit preaching the Bible to me. I don't care about the Bible. I'm going to do whatever I want. No, I'm not going to come to church with you and worship God. I have no interest in that. What is that? That's an enemy of God speaking. That's an enemy of God speaking. Now, although mankind is in enmity against God, Mankind oftentimes isn't aware of it. And in fact, a lot of times you say, well, wait a minute, men aren't naturally enemies of God because they don't, they don't wake up in the morning and say, I hate God. Now, what can I do to show that I hate God? No, they don't do that, but they don't seek him. They don't pursue him. They don't thank him. They don't love him. They don't acknowledge him. Jonathan Edwards illustrated this very well in his, in his message, Men Naturally God's Enemy. He says, Man, man's enmity against God lies hidden much of the time when everything is going well for man. And he illustrated like this. Think of a snake. A snake comes out in your yard, and there it is, just laying there, and the snake's cold-blooded, and so he's in the sun, and he likes the sun, and the sun makes him feel good, and the sun's warming him up, and that snake is just content and happy as can be. And you could just stand there, and you could look at that snake, and he's just sitting there as content and happy as it can be. But what happens if you touch his tail? He immediately hisses. He immediately coils. He immediately goes against you. And Edward says that's an illustration of mankind. 
As long as God's good, as long as God's taking care of them, as long as God blesses them, but as soon as something goes on, what is God doing? Why is God doing this? Who would follow a God like this? And man's enmity just comes alive. So men are naturally God's enemy. But what does God do to these people who are objects of wrath? He's constantly, because it's his default mode, he's constantly showing them mercy. He's constantly showing them love. He's constantly blessing them. He's constantly doing them good. And that's part of what it means to be loved by God. God loves the world. Now, I want to talk to those of you who are here who are Reformed Christians, because I know most of us, we're Reformed Church, Reformed Christians. And you recognize, and one of, the, one of the dangers of Reformed theology, if it's taken wrong, is people will get the idea that God, because we've looked at the sovereignty of God in salvation. We've looked at it in chapter three, in chapter 1 and verse 3, God choosing in verse 4, choosing before the foundation of the world. We went through all of that is to get the wrong impression that the Bible teaches that God only loves the elect and hates everybody else. And I've actually heard and, and, and people talking like this in Reformed circles. And that is absolutely blatantly unbiblical. It's unsound. It's wrong. And if your theology takes you there to the point that your theology and the logic of a certain theological perspective takes you to the point that you then take some passages of Scripture and you deny them or lop them off, then Spurgeon said it this way in talking about this very issue. Spurgeon said, if my theology, my system of theology makes me lop off whole portions of Scripture that teach something else about God, that it's not a contradiction but a different aspect of God, I'm going to change my theology. I'm not lopping off any part of Scripture. And that's what I want us to look at today. God has a genuine, real love for the world. He has a genuine and real mercy and compassion for all people. There is a genuine, sincere offer of the gospel. You say, well, how does that work with verse chapter 1 and verse 4 and chapter 1 and verse 5? I don't know how it completely works. But I don't know a lot of things about how things... God is inscrutable to us. He is big. He's great. But what I do know is this. This is what the Bible teaches and what the Bible reveals. And I'm going to show you this in Scripture here. For instance, and I don't, we don't need to put this one on the board, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son to a world that he loves, a world that he loves. Turn with me in your Bibles. Stay, keep Mark, Ephesians marked and Jonah marked. Uh, but turn with me in your Bibles to just a few chap uh, verses, er uh, books earlier to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says uh, this amazing thing about this God and his love for the world and his desire to reconcile. In chapter, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, you guys can put that up. That's the next one. We've already looked at this, but notice what the word that is used there. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now, that's the idea of reconciliation. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Reconciliation is the re restoring of a relationship, seeking to fix a relationship, seeking to be restored with somebody. And this is saying, this verse is an amazing verse because, can, can you put that up back up again? Because notice what this verse says. It says that when we were enemies, what did God do? We, God reconciled us to himself. You see, normally, if somebody's your enemy, it's their job to come and seek reconciliation. God was seeking reconciliation to his enemies. 
And that's the idea that you get in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 and look with me uh, in there to verse 18. It says this, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. So God did the preemptive reconciliation to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reestablish relationship. Be my friend. That's what God is saying through us. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though, or a better translation is seeing that, God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now notice what is going on here. We are the instruments of reconciliation. We have gone out as God's ambassador into the world. We have a message from God. And what is that message that we have from God? It is God pleading. Look at those words. The sovereign God pleading. The almighty God pleading. The internal God pleading to small fallen creatures, objects of his wrath, pleading with them, be reconciled to me. Be my friend. I've provided every means for you to be my friend, to be reconciled to me. I've sacrificed my son. I've sent my son. I've so loved the world I gave my son. Now be reconciled to me. Let's be friends. Restore relationship. I, God, am pleading through this preaching of the gospel. That's God's general love for mankind. That's God's goodness and God's love and God's kindness flowing out to his creation. And that's what we need to understand about God. God is rich in love. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in kindness. He is rich in goodness. And that goodness and kindness just flows out of him whenever God is doing stuff. And God's loving this creation. He's loving this world. He's loving these billions of people in this world. And he's taking care of them and he's providing for them. And that message comes up time and time again when the gospel, the apostles, Apostles go out into, the, into the, the lost world and begin to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 17, Paul's in Lystra and he's preaching uh, to unbelievers, to, to, to actually uh, polytheistic pagan worshipers. And notice what he says here about God. He says, nevertheless, God did not leave himself. He did not leave himself without witness. So he says, even though you guys are, witnessing, are, are worshiping pagan gods, God has been witnessing to you the entire time. God has been speaking to you the entire time in that he did good. See, God's goodness is a witness to him. And notice this, gave, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. Right now, farmers are praying for rain. We should have been praying for rain this morning too. Praying for rain because the seeds are, are planted, the, the, the young uh, buds are coming out and there's no rain and we need rain, desperately need rain. Well, notice here, God gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons Filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, notice what that says about God. God, all the time, all the time, every nation, every people, every climate, he's pouring out his love. He's pouring out his goodness. He's giving us rain. He's giving us fruitful seasons. Flowers start bursting and crops start coming and cattle are eating on green pastures. And God is giving us food. Our gardens are coming forth. And, and, God, and what is all that? That is the goodness of God being poured out, the goodness of God, God's love, God's mercy, God's compassion for us, God's concern that we have food to eat, God's concern that we have a lot of food to eat, God's God's concerned that we're, he fills our hearts with food and gladness and gladness. Again, Paul goes then to Athens and he preaches in another very, very 
pagan culture. And notice what he says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 24. Paul was preaching. He said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Now notice this. Since he gives, notice the phrase, the word there, gives. Since he gives to all life and breath and all things. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God gives life to every single human being on earth? He gives it to them as a gift. Whether they live in China, whether they live in Africa, whether they live in Europe, whether they live in, in, in the Middle East, whether, wherever they live, God gives everybody life. And breath. That was a gift from God. So was that one. I'm sleeping doing this. My wife tells me that that's what I do. But every time I do that, that's a gift from God even while I'm asleep. God gives to all life and breath. And look at the next phrase. And all things. Oh, back up, guys. You're going faster than me. God gives life and breadth and all things. Everything that you've ever owned, ever had, any relationship you ever had, any blessing you ever had, any time you ever got over a cold, any time you ever got over and healing that you was restored to you, God gave you everything. This is Paul preaching to the pagan world. He's preaching with all these idols around him. He says, listen, guys, God has been witnessing to you. He's been good to you. He's been showing you what a good God he is. Then he goes on to say this. He says, and, that he, and he has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. God has set the whole world up the way he set it up. Why? Verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and we move and we have our being, and he is not far from us. And we and he says, and, and, and also some of you, your own prophets have said, we are his own offspring. Paul says God has determined all of our lives, and God has given us witness and witness, and, and he's poured out all of these seeds, and he's given us all this food, and he's given us all this gladness, and he's given us light and he's given us breath and he's given us all things and he has blessed us and in him we live and move and have our being why so that the entire pagan world seeing the sky the, earth, the heavens declare the glory of God the sun sets the sun rises all of the stars all of their crops all of their food their healthy children their life their breath their health all that they have that God that they would do what that they would seek this God that they would where is, where's, that, where's that water bottle? Where's that water bottle? Where's that water bottle? Imagine I'm in the dark. Where's that water bottle? Where's that water bottle? Oh, here it is. That's the word that Paul uses, that they might grope for him and find him. See, this God is good. This God loves. This God is infinite in love. This God is concerned right now that Mozambique is being fed. This God is concerned that Yemen, people in Yemen are being fed. This God is concerned that he, you say, well, how could God do that? This God is infinite capacity to love. Let me illustrate this for you. I'll use somebody that you all know really well. I know a guy who has 11 kids, okay? He's got 17 grandkids and one on the way, all right? Maybe more. He doesn't know about them ones yet. 
And you know, this has been one huge massive experiment for me, okay? Because there are people that say, if you have 11 kids, you can't love them all as much as I love my two or my three. And you know what? That is absolutely false. Because a parent's love is not a quantity. So if you have one kid, he gets 100%. If you have two kids, they each get 50%. If you have 10 kids, they each get 10%. Poor my kids, they even get less than that. That's not true. That's not true. I'll tell you right now, I have 11 kids and I have 17 grandkids and I love every one of them immensely. And if any one of them were taken from me, I would feel that immensely. And you know what else? I delight in each one of them. In a di I love them differently. I'll say that. Not more or less. Just different. You know why? Because you delight. I put it this way. Each one of them, I delight in something or many things that makes them uniquely them. I delight in them. I don't say, man, I wish you were like that. I don't do that. I delight in them. I delight in Isaac. And I delight in Isaac in a way. And then I delight in Danny. And I delight in Milo. And I delight in Dan and Grace. I delight in them. And I, great, great. now think of God. I'm just one little skinny little, oh, by the way, my grandson Soren told me I couldn't preach today. I said to Soren, I'm preaching today. He said, no way, you're bald. I didn't even know hair was a qualification of preaching. <laughs> I said, no, bald guys preach. In fact, they're really good. The poor, the poor kid was up 24 hours traveling from North Africa, so he's, he's, he's supposed to be napping right now. Let's hope he is. But if he's watching me, I said, bald guys are the best preachers. I was teasing him. But anyway, what I'm saying is this. I'm, I'm a finite creature. God is infinite. And God can literally take 7 billion people and love and care about and have delight in each one of them. In fact, the Bible tells us that God even does that with birds. Luke chapter 12 and verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? Right now, God knows every single bird that's alive. And he knows if that bird has had breakfast this morning because God feeds the birds and he cares about whether they had breakfast this morning. This morning I got up and Soren and I went and fed Dan's chickens that are, that are at my house. We took care that those chickens had food this morning. God does that for every single bird. Why? God is infinite, first of all. He can do that. God could start naming you every single bird that's alive today right now. He knows exactly where it is right now because God's an infinite God, infinite in knowledge, infinite and in omnipresent. Secondly, though, God cares about those birds. He's concerned about them. Why? Because God is infinite in mercy. And therefore, Jesus is saying you're more valuable than birds. God knows every single person, every single need, all who they are, and God is infinite in mercy, and God cares, and God is loving toward them. This is who God is. God is love. God is compassion. God is mercy. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. God is long-suffering. God is, is, is generous. God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. So let's take the next step. As Christians, we're to be transformed into the image of God. 
In fact, because he loves us, we're to be transformed in his image and be more like him. In Romans chapter 12, it says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Look at that. By the mercies of God. In light of all of the mercies of God that you have experienced, I beseech you that you present yourselves, a body, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The mercies of God is to transform us, and we're supposed to be like God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5. He's telling us that we are to be merciful and kind and loving like God. Because God is kind and loving to everyone, we're to be kind and loving and merciful to everyone. That's Jesus' teaching, including our enemies, because God is kind and loving and merciful to his enemies. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who, who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be, and that's not in order that you may earn the right. It's in order that you may prove yourself to be. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than the others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're told that we're supposed to walk in love, not be pressed into the world's mold, to be transformed by his grace and mercy, and to be like God. So let's apply this to ourselves. Let's apply this to ourselves. The world wants to press you into its mold. The world wants you to think like they do and live like they do. Now, I want to make a very specific application this, this, this Sunday. I want to make a very specific application out of my pastoral concern for all of us, including myself, okay, and the world that we live in today. Dear friends, we live in very unique times, very unique times. Many people, even people, older people like me who, who've lived through you know, quite a few decades, this, these are unique times. And these times are marked by division and almost a tribalism. It's almost a tribalism. It's like there's one tribe here, there's one tribe here, and there's no middle ground. You've got to be in one of the two tribes. And therefore, our, our society that we live in right now is marked by anger. It's marked by anger, animosity, strife, vying for political power, for our tribe. That's where everybody's at, our tribe. And we can't give an inch to the other tribe. The other tribe is bad. It doesn't matter what tribe you're in, by the way, right now. You can be in the tribe on the right. You can be the tribe of your left. I don't care what tribe you're in. But right now, we're, we're in two tribes right and left politically, and the other tribe is bad, and our tribe is good. And they're so bad that we can't give them an inch. If we give them an inch, they'll take a mile, and we can't let that happen. So we, they're bad, and, and we know they're bad. And everything they say makes us angry. Everything they do makes us angry, and we don't want to associate with them at all. That's the mentality of the culture that you live in today. 
I recently heard a news story of some people that lived in a, in a, a progressive area of the country, progressive neighborhood. They were progressive people in their estimation. And their girls' swim team had the uncomfortable situation of a man identifying as a woman coming in and undressing in the locker room. And these parents were horrified. They were horrified that this was taking place in their locker room. And the man said this. A man was interviewed. He said this. I don't even know what to say to you. I'm horrified at what my daughter went through there. But I don't want you to think I watched Tucker Carlson. Do you see what he was doing? I don't like what happened here, but I ain't that tribe. I ain't that tribe. And you see, Christians today, are we're getting caught up in this. You see, we see much of what's going on around us. We see that much of it is wrong. We see that there's a lot of sin. We see that the country and the culture is becoming degraded. And we see that there's instigators who are provoking these things. And there's much around us that we see that should make us angry. It, it truly should. There should be a legitimate anger at some of the stuff that is going on around us. There is a place for it. And there is a place for anger. Jesus got angry. He formed a cord of whi a whip, not to hit people, and to drive cattle out and to get the, he overturned the money changers tables and he, and he released their pigeons and he, he, get this stuff out of here, get it out of here. And, and, and he was so zealous for his father's glory and he was righteously angry. He was righteously indignant. Turn with me to Ephesians. He was angry. He was angry. And there is a time to be angry. There is. And there is a place for righteous anger. And if you see some of the things that are going on around us today and you don't become righteously angry, there's something wrong with you. We should be angry. But look what Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 says. It says, be angry, be angry, and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Be angry, but make sure that anger doesn't lead you into sin, animosity, malice, hatred, bad words, whatever, and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Let that anger not be long-term, because if you let that anger be long-term, you're going to give place to the devil. And that's the very thing that is happening in our culture today. And, and I'm not speaking to the whole culture. I'm speaking to us Christians. We run the risk of being people who are permanently angry like Jesus was at that moment in the temple. Do you see Jesus, the rest of the gospel? Do you see Jesus for the rest of the gospel storming around with a whip? turning over tables and being angry, and all you have to do is just get, don't get me started on the Pharisees. Don't get me started on the Sadducees. Don't get me started on what's going on. You see Jesus doing that in the rest of the Gospels? No, you don't. No, you don't. You see, we run the risk of being molded into this angry world that is so antagonistic, so tribal. We run the risk of being molded into that mold so that we become perpetually angry perpetually mean, perpetually bitter, perpetually upset. And every little event, every, even a word, like this, this fella uh, who, with his daughter, just the name Tucker Carlson set him off. 
And we can be people who, who are like that, who just get set off, and all of a sudden we're hateful. All of a sudden we're spiteful. All of a sudden we see people as enemies that need to be defeated. We hate them. We'll even hate people. We'll get up, we'll get up, up in alarms if we even think they might be from the other tribe. Why? Well, I think he might be a Republican. I think she might be a Democrat. I think they may. Oh, you don't even know yet. But whoa, whoa, do I attack now? Do I attack now? That's the way we live right now. And we're vengeful. We want people from the other side. We want things to go bad for them. Uh-huh. There you go. That's where your philosophy is going to lead you. You deserve it. What are you, an idiot? You didn't think that was going to happen? Ha! We knew that was going to happen. Hey, everybody, look what happened to him. That's the way we've become. And you know what, dear friends? We're not to be that. God to the ungodly is rich in mercy. God to the ungodly is loving compassionate, gives them rain, gives them crops, gives them happiness, gives them life, gives them breath, gives them all things. In him they live and move and have their being. God is a God who is, who is over, overflowing with compassion. Us, turn to Jonah, we're like Jonah. We're angry all the time. We're angry. And you know what? I think the very thing that Jonah, the question that Jonah is asked by God is this in verse 4. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? But notice what Jonah said earlier. He said, Lord, I'm angry. But God, you, look at the middle of verse 2. You are gracious and merciful, God, slow to anger and abundant in, uh, in loving kindness one who relents from doing harm. See, Jonah is angry. Look at verse 1. Jonah is exceedingly angry. He's displeased. He's angry. But then he says, God, you are God who is slow to anger and merciful. And in fact, I'm ticked off at you too. And God asked the question, is it right for you to be and then Jonah falls in love with this little plant that's keeping his bald head from the sun. The little plant dies, and then Jonah's sad about that, and he's angry about that situation. And, John, and, and he says, God says to him in verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He says, yeah, it's right. And God says, but you're not angry if I destroy this entire nation of Nineveh? No, I'm not angry about that. I'm angry you haven't destroyed them. Dear friends, we need to become more godlike. We need to become people of mercy. Secularism. I'm, in, I'm at war against secularism because of how it's destroying this culture and these people, but I don't hate secularists. In fact, we should have compassion on secularists. These poor people have no answers to life whatsoever. They think we just appeared here and it's just chance and we have no purpose, no meaning, no dignity, no values, no hope. 
This world's all we got. This little frail body's all we got. And it's going to expire in 70, 80, 90 years and die. And then there'll be nothing left. There's no God. We're all alone in this universe. And these people are scared. And they're trying to find meaning. And so they latch on to money. Or they latch on to career. Or they latch on to pleasure. They latch on to sex. They latch on to relationships or something. And then all none of those give them meaning in life. And so then they self-medicate, either by distraction, by, by just keeping themselves distracted and moving, or by self-medicating with drugs or alcohol. And they're depressed, and they're alone. And I think it would be as if God were to say, is it right to show no mercy to these people? I'm merciful toward them. I feel for them. Do you Christians not? Think of the youth today. Interviews of young people today is one of them is that they're economically so frustrated because they said they'll never attain their parents' wealth. And they're deeply in debt from college education and things like that, and they don't know how they're going to get out from underneath that. And then regardless of what you think about climate change, these, some of these young people are very, very, very concerned. And there, there was a, a, a United Nations study that came out, and, and in that study, it mentioned 19, uh, to the, the, the year 2030 as sort of a tipping point. That study, actually, if you were read it and look at that study, that I'm told that that study did not say that, but the media picked up on that, and young people picked up on that, and there are many young people today who really feel that because we are so not concerned about climate change and we're not making any real changes about, and we're making all these just little superficial things, that that tipping point is coming. Once that tipping point comes at 2030, and some of them may only be 30 or 40 years at that point, the world as we know it, the climate as we know it, is going to start to really uh, be a, a huge disaster and a problem. And they're worried about this. They're very much worried about this. They're scared. And is it right for us to not have any mercy for that? Could you imagine being a young person, 20 years old, 18 years old, and think that the world as you know it is going to be absolutely destroyed in a short period of time? The young people today, just like my generation was, I'm sure if you could talk to my grandpa now, he'd say the same thing. The young people today have been coddled. They've been handed stuff. They've been never made to work, many of them. They've never suffered any want, and that has made them fragile. It has made them fearful. It is make them feel unsafe about lots of things. And what do we do, especially us older ones? We ridicule them. When are you going to grow up? When are you going to get to grow up? Come on, be a man. Be tough. But these kids are scared. And they're, and they're, and they're fragile. And is there no place for mercy? Is there no place for compassion? Is God merciful toward them? Is God compassionate? Homosexual people, people who struggle with same-sex attraction, transgender people. Yes, I know that there's advocates that are pressing on these things, that we must uh, 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 normalize all this stuff. But let's back up for a second. Actual homosexual people, actual transgender people, can you imagine, try to imagine, what it would be like growing up and you're 12, 13, or 14, and you realize, oh, no. I'm not attracted toward women. I'm attracted toward men. Or you're a woman. I'm not, or you're a woman. I should have been made a man. I track with the men. I don't track with the women. I'm weird. I'm different. 
Now, who do I tell this to? The cool kids at school will literally laugh at me, and I won't have a friend. That, that would be social suicide. My parents wouldn't understand. My grandparents will be horrified. Who do I tell? This is my secret. And my secret is that I'm different, and I'm odd, and I feel weird, and I don't know what to do about it. Do we have no compassion for these people? Do we have no mercy? God has mercy upon them. God is compassionate for them. Or are we like Jonah? I think God could say to you, is it right, the attitude that you have? Paul talks about the enemies of Christ. The enemies of the cross of Christ. And in Philippians 3.19, he says this. He's talking about the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he uses these words. These people whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, that means their desires, their appetites, who glory in their shame. Think of the sisters of perpetual indulgence that are in the news right now. Who set their minds on earthly things. Now look at that verse. These people's end is destruction. Their God is their appetites. Their glory is in shame. Their glory is in shame. And they set their mind on earthly things. Well, we know who these rascals are. We see them in our culture. We knew who they are. And we can't believe that people allow them to come into libraries and talk to children. But notice Paul's attitude, one verse ahead of this one. In 3.18, he said this, For many walk, of whom I have told you often. Now he's talking, look at the end of the verse. They are enemies of Christ. These people walk as enemies of Christ. They're into destruction. Their God is their belly. He's going to say that. But notice what he says next. I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. Not angry, not bitter, not vengeful, not pointing them out as the wrong tribe. Weeping. As I write this, I'm weeping. Why? Flip back to 19, guys. I'm weeping because they're enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. I'm weeping because they glory in their shame. They call themselves the sisters of perpetual indulgence, and they have sister porn again, and they're ridiculing religion, and they're sexualizing everything, and I weep for them. Dear friends, this is what we who know God and know grace and know mercy and know his forgiveness and know his patience and know his long-suffering and know his great love that he would even send his son for his enemies, this God of infinite goodness, this God of infinite love who has poured this upon us, we ought to be people like this to those around us. What should we do? I think we should do two things. Number one, I think we Christians should repent. I think we should confess our sins. I know I have, and I continue to do it. We need to confess our sinful anger. We need to confess our bitterness. We need to confess our lack of mercy. And we need to drink in more deeply of God's mercy. We need to understand God better. We need to be transformed by this beautiful, glorious, gracious, forgiving, patient, kind, 
God. He's going to judge sin. He's going to send people to hell. He's going to bring his wrath. But that's not his ordinary default mode. His ordinary default mode is patience and mercy and giving food and giving clothing and filling their hearts with gladness and giving them life that they might grope for him, that they might find him and saying, I'm here. Look at this sunset. I'm here. Look at these stars. I'm here. Look at these crops. I'm here. Look at these flowers. I'm here and I love you and I'm good. Grope for me. Find me. Grope for me. Find me. Hear my preachers. Be, re be reconciled with me. Be my friend. I've sent my son. Look at the cross. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Yes, you're transgender. Yes, you're homosexual. Yes, Yes, you're in a certain political camp. Yes, you're this. Yes, you're that. Yes, you're trying to normalize sin. Yes, you're my enemies. But here, here's some food. Here's some clothing. Here's breath. Here's life. Here's goodness. Come to me. I'm pleading with you. Come, repent. This is who God is. And we need to repent and become like him. And so secondly, we need more transformation. We need it so that our default mode, oh God, we need to say, oh God, transform me. So that my default mode is mercy. My default mode is love. My default mode is grace. My default mode is kindness. My default mode is to look at a sinful Jerusalem filled with Pharisees and Sadducees who's about to execute me and weep and say, oh, God, have mercy upon them. I wish I could just gather you like little chicks, like a hen gathers its chicks. We need a greater love. And dear friends, I think that will make our outreach better. See, people know when you are mad at them. Spouses, those of you who are married here, you know when your wife's mad at you. She doesn't have to say one thing. She doesn't have to say one thing. You know she's mad at you. Did I do something wrong? Are, are you mad at me? Husbands, wives, you know that. Are you, are you mad at me? You know when somebody's mad at you. It's a tone of voice. There's something different. There's something there. There's something quiet. Dear friends, if we are mad all the time, if we are bitter all the time, if we are angry all the time, if we are frustrated all the time, if we are vengeful all the time, people will know it. And that's why I'm a, I, I, I want to preach this message so at least here the face of Christianity is not the face of a scowl, not the face of righteous indignation, not the face of always having a whip ready to clear the temple. But the face of Christianity should be holy, yes, we should stand against the tide, yes. Sorry I can't come with you on this transgender thing. Sorry I can't come with you on this. Sorry I can't come with you on this other thing. But the face of Christianity should be, but I love you, and I'm concerned for you, and I weep for you. And oh, that I could just tell you of the grace of God and how much God loves you and what God is doing for you and done for you. Oh, hear his voice, hear his voice. Let that be the face. The face of Christianity should be like in the face of Christ that even loved his own enemies. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's hard for me to believe that in this battlefield that we live in, in this time of such animosity and hatred and tribes and camps and name-calling, it's hard for me to believe that there isn't one person in here who doesn't need to repent at this moment, and I include myself very much in that. For our sudden outbursts of anger, for our hatred of certain people, for our hatred of what they stand for, and we then mix that for hatred of them. 
for our vengeful spirits, our mean spirits, we confess before you. Our angry words, our ugly words. We've even cut off relationships perhaps with people that we should be loving. We're short with people. We get in their face. We poke them in the chest. We're resentful. We delight when things go bad for them. These are all wicked sins and we confess them before you and we ask that you would please forgive us and cleanse us through the blood of Jesus. Wash us, we pray. And Father, we ask that you would fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit and that we would walk in your mercy, in your grace, in your compassion, in your long-suffering, in your patience, in your sympathy and your pity and your kindness and your generosity. Fill us, we pray, with the fruit of the Spirit. Fill us and make us a people that will be for your glory and that will advance your kingdom and that we will be a foretaste, a refreshing foretaste for this sad and broken world of the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will reign. Help us now, even as we prepare our heart for this table. Father, we're going to come to this table as sinners. We're going to come in need of blood, in need of your grace, and that's why we're asking you to forgive us now that through the blood of Jesus we could come to your table as sinners saved by grace, forgiven and cleansed by the blood. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name.